0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Steel Crow Saga by Paul Kruger, which is a hard book to describe well. It's kind of World War II East Asia meets Pokemon. I know that sounds very strange, but I promise it's very good. And if you want to check that out, go to audibletrial.com japan. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 331, In the Beginning, Woman Was the sun, Part 3. One of the things that comes up a lot in discussions of 20th century Japan is just how much we should consider the Second World War to be a turning point. It's certainly accurate, for example, that a lot of the roots of post-war Japan's economic success lay in the pre-war era with planning policies used to develop Japan's overseas empire, which were then applied at home. It's also true that a surprising number of politicians and bureaucrats were able to survive involvement in the wartime regime and continued to be leading political figures at home. At the same time, it's equally undeniable that the post-war era represented a pretty radical break from the past in quite a few sectors, if nothing else, the demolition of powerful institutions like the imperial military or the home ministry, which had been so dominant in the landscape of the pre-war era, radically redrew the map of Japanese politics. Still, most fields of Japanese society found themselves somewhere in the middle between continuity and change. The world of Japanese feminists was definitely one of those in-between areas. On the one hand, the end of the war and the American occupation brought dramatic shifts to Japan. For example, the legal system of the pre-war era severely disadvantaged Japanese women, as it privileged the role of the male head of household as the dominant force in the life of the family. These old law codes were thrown out. The position of family head became a symbolic and legally unimportant one, as a new Americanized legal code which emphasized individual rights and freedoms was imposed. Then, of course, there was the Constitution drafted by the Americans in one week in February 1947, and adopted without change by the Diet and the Emperor later that year. Among its many provisos were bits like Article 24, Marriage shall be based only on the mutual consent of both sexes and shall be maintained through mutual cooperation with the equal rights of husband and wife as a basis. With regard to choice of spouse, property rights, inheritance, choice of domicile, divorce, and other matters pertaining to marriage and family, laws shall be enacted from the standpoint of individual dignity and the essential equality of the sexes. Or Article 15, which read in part, universal adult suffrage is guaranteed with regard to the election of public officials, essentially legislating women's right to vote at a stroke. Or probably the most sweeping change, Article 14, all of the people are equal under the law and there shall be no discrimination in political, economic, or social relations because of race, sex, creed, social status, or family origin." We've talked a bit before about how these articles came to be. The central figure of that story is Beata Sirota, sometimes referred to by her married name, Beata Sirota Gordon, though she was not married during the occupation. Beata Sirota was an Austrian Jew whose family had fled Europe during the 1930s, eventually making their way to Japan. She spent her childhood in Tokyo and developed a fluency in Japanese, but eventually left Japan for college and settled in the States, where she naturalized as a citizen. Her folks stayed behind and actually ended up passing the war in Japan. Once the war ended, she signed up to serve in the U.S. occupation, which was desperate for anyone who could read and write Japanese to help, you know, actually run Japan, particularly since the command levels of the occupation were deeply suspicious of anyone who had spent time as a diplomat or attache to the American Embassy in pre-war Japan. Those old Japan hands, as they were often called, were often voices of caution against trying to rewrite too much in Japan too quickly, and were thus viewed as too attached to the old Japanese system, and largely blocked from active involvement in the occupation. But of course, that also closed off a lot of expertise on the country, while creating openings for people like Beata Sirota, who did not have formal diplomatic or government training, but did have a BA, fluency in Japanese, and a willingness to help out. Sirota ended up in the government section of the occupation, and from there, was assigned to the committee responsible for drafting the constitution. Remembering back to her own experiences of pre-war Japan, she became convinced that the laws protecting women had to be written into the Constitution itself. That was the only way to guarantee they could not be challenged or overruled, particularly given how many old guard leaders from pre-war Japan were still around. And she was able to convince her higher-ups, most notably the American in charge of the drafting process, Colonel Charles Cadies, to back her up. Now... Beata Sorota Gordon's role in shaping the Japanese constitution is indisputably important. She is a central figure in post-war Japanese history for that reason. However, she is not the only figure in the story of how the occupation helped change Japanese feminism. Indeed, in a lot of ways, her contribution came at the end of a much longer struggle. You see, as early as 1945, the American planners of the occupation had included alterations to the status of women in Japan as a part of their long-term vision for remaking Japanese society. Their theory, essentially, was that the pre-war status quo had been male-dominated and highly patriarchal, which, yes, that analysis is correct. To challenge that society and to change it, women would be an essential social counterweight. As early as December 1945, Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, Douglas MacArthur, presented a five-point plan for reform to the Japanese government. Included in that reform plan was the goal of expanding voting rights for women. And even before that, Japanese suffragettes had started to mobilize to seize the moment presented to them by the end of the war. And who led that mobilization? Why, surprise, surprise, a familiar face. As we mentioned last time, Ichikawa Fusaya had spent the war years as an affiliate of the Greater Japan Women's Defense Association, a group run by the Imperial Japanese Army to, well, mobilize women for war-related purposes. She did not talk about this much later in life, but it seems that she accepted the bargain a lot of Japanese feminists did. They could make progress on some of the things they wanted by accepting support from the army, and from bureaucratic leaders on areas of common interest, in other words, a relationship of mutual advantage. I imagine she would have framed it in a sort of I-was-using-them-as-much-as-they-were-using-me-light. And the fact that this was not a relationship built on mutual affection was pretty clear from the speed with which Ijikawa Fusae began to shift gears with the end of the war. On August 25th, 1945, only ten days after Japan announced its surrender and a full eight days before the surrender ceremony made the end of the war official, Ichikawa and a group of her supporters organized a new women's suffrage campaign to begin pushing for the vote. This group went through a couple of name changes in its early days. To simplify things, I'm going to use the name they eventually settled on, the Shin Nihon Fujindome, which roughly translates as the New Japan Women's League. Now, I should also note that the New Japan Women's League was not without competitors. In particular, another American woman associated with the occupation government, Ethel Weed, actually encouraged the organization of a separate women's group, the Advisory Club for Women, led by the socialist and feminist Kato Shizue, who we've talked about on this show before as well. See episode 106. Weed worked with Kato specifically because Kato was, well, a socialist, and therefore had opposed Japan's war effort, making her and her colleagues in the Advisory Club for Women far more palatable to the American occupation authorities than a collaborator like Ichikawa was. Now, both of these groups did play important roles in advancing the cause of women's suffrage. Kato and her followers were more popular with the Americans and were able to help back Beata Sorota in her push to convince the American occupation authorities, who were overwhelmingly male, to back women's suffrage. Ichikawa, meanwhile, had more supporters among Japan's government, where her patriotic wartime work, the same thing that made her so unpopular with the Americans, was remembered with more fondness. As a result, she was able to meet with the sitting Prime Minister, Baron Shidahara Kijiro in October 1945, and convince him to back a push for women's suffrage. It was, she reasoned, the kind of thing the Americans would want to see Japan do, since their own system had extended voting rights to women back in 1920. As a result, as early as November 1945, the Prime Minister expressed his support for women's suffrage, and the Diet backed a new law expanding the vote to women. On April 10th, 1946, Japan held its first ever election in which women were allowed to vote. This was also the first election since 1940, in which separate political parties were allowed to organize. With 72.1% voter turnout, women not only showed up to the ballot box, they also sent women to the Diet for the very first time. 39 women, actually, which is the largest number of female candidates elected to the Diet in history, up until 2005. Kato Shizue was actually among those women elected to the Diet, and she would remain there for decades after. Ichikawa, however, could neither vote nor run in this election. Because of her wartime collaboration with the military government, she was purged by the Americans and prevented from holding office or voting in elections. Though she remained active in the new Japan Women's League, she herself would not be allowed to engage directly in public life until the Americans lifted her purge status in 1950. One other thing to note about this election, by the way, that makes it very interesting, not only was it the first election women could vote in, they actually outvoted men in this election. About 16 million men cast ballots, compared to 20 million women. So, what gives with this, then? Why am I spending time talking about Beata Sirota if women could already vote by 1946 and the new constitution wasn't even drafted until 47? Well, here's the thing. As I mentioned, Sirota reasoned, not incorrectly, that if the Japanese government was only extending the vote to women because they thought the Americans wanted them to, there was a very real chance they would try to walk things back after the Americans left. Given that likelihood there had to be some kind of insurance against that happening, for example a constitution which clearly enshrined the right to vote for women. Therefore, I think it's fair to say that a fuller picture of the eventual triumph of the women's suffrage movement in Japan incorporates the story of Beata Sorota as well as the advocacy of Ichikawa Fusae and Kato Shizue. Ichikawa and Kato were instrumental in seeing the election law opened up to women's votes, Sarota was essential to permanently securing those expanded voting rights by making sure that, come hell or high water, they would be nigh impossible to roll back. Indeed, viewing this as a collaborative effort makes the most sense because we know for a fact that it was a collaboration. Sarota, as well as other women within SCAP, met with both Kato and Ichikawa and did coordinate with them, their advice on the inherent conservatism of Japanese politicians helped convince Sorota of the necessity of constitutional protections for women's rights. And they were able to accomplish a lot during this time period with support from the occupation authorities. For example, the occupation government agreed to support a labor law flat-out legislating equal pay for women and men, as well as childbirth and even menstrual leave from work called the Labor Standards Law. The occupation government also agreed to establishing a governmental bureau of women and minors to enforce their policies. These triumphs were less durable, though. That law, which is still on the books, was written in vague enough terminology that it was pretty easy to ignore. The law prohibits discrimination on wages based on gender, but not, for example, discriminating in terms of job role based on gender, which can then be an excuse to pay different wages. The Women and Miners Bureau was, meanwhile, subsumed by the Ministry of Labor and relegated to a pretty minor role, all of which, by the way, supports the analysis of Beata Sorota, Ichikawa Fusai, and Kato Shizue that, given the chance, the Japanese government would try to roll back occupation-era reforms for women. So that's a little bit of what changed for women during the American occupation. Now I want to focus back in on our main characters, so to speak, starting with Ichikawa. So Ichikawa Fusae's political dream was finally complete. After almost four decades in the service of the cause of women's suffrage, she'd finally managed to see it done. So, now what? Well, even while she was purged, the first women, by the way, to be removed from politics in this way, she remained active in the New Japan Women's League, which eventually renamed itself to the Japan League of Women Voters, and very consciously modeled itself on the American League of Women Voters, and which aimed to fulfill a very similar function, mobilizing women politically to vote now that they had the right to do so. At the same time, Ichikawa began branching out into other causes as well. The original cause of her break with Hiratsuka Raicho had been Ichikawa's focus on suffrage first, but now that was accomplished, and Ichikawa began to get involved in other forms of activism. For example, she was an early member of the political movement to outlaw licensed prostitution in Japan, which she and many other female activists viewed, not without good reason, as extremely exploitative in its treatment of young women. She was also active in the anti-rearmament movement, which sought to counterbalance increasing American pressure for Japan to develop its own military forces. Ultimately, though, engagement in politics remained her passion, and in 1953, having been finally removed from the purge lists banning her from politics, Ichikawa got her chance to engage just about as directly as it is possible to do so. In 1953, Japan held its third-ever election for the Upper House of Counselors, which originally had been an unelected house of aristocrats and nobles, and which had repeatedly stymied efforts in the 20s and 30s to expand legal rights for women. However, the Americans and their constitution rewrote the rules for the House of Counselors, so that now it was reworked into an elected position similar to the U.S. Senate. Ichikawa decided to stand for the House of Counselors as an independent for the city of Tokyo, and even without any party machine behind her, she won. And she kept winning, too, all the while remaining an independent. Except for one brief period in the early 70s where she lost her seat and then regained it, Ichikawa Fusaya would remain in the diet from 1953 until 1981. Ichikawa's role as a diet woman is interesting. On the one hand, she championed some very important causes. Among other things, she remained active in the peace movement, working hard to rebuild relations with Japan's neighboring states and actively lobbying against the expansion of the military and for stronger social safety nets to help lift Japan back out of wartime poverty. She also made clean electioneering a big part of her platform, constantly refusing any large donations or gifts from politicians or from political groups and pushing for stronger election laws around money and she made it her goal to lift up other women in politics. One of her most famous political recommendations was to advance the career of Ogata Sadako, an American-educated Japanese woman with a PhD in international relations. Ichikawa was instrumental in getting Ogata's career started by arranging for her to become Japan's representative in the United Nations General Assembly. Ogata would go on to become one of Japan's most famous diplomats. On the other hand, Ichikawa's practical accomplishments were somewhat limited. Though she was not a party member, her politics put her more in line with the opposition socialists than with the dominant conservative liberal democrats, and as a result her actual influence over legislation was, well, somewhat minimal. Though she remained a popular figure among Japanese women, her attempts to change election laws to make them cleaner did not succeed, see literally the entire career of Tanaka Kakuei, for examples. Still, she was a remarkably successful politician for the length of her political career, if nothing else, and she remained active in the diet well into 1980, and won re-election in that year, by a crushing margin to boot. However, the very next year she had a heart attack, and died in February 1981 at the age of 87. What about Hiratsuka Raicho? We left her largely withdrawn from the political sphere and having turned to home life, thanks in part to ill health. And that's largely where she would stay. In the 1930s, she'd moved out to the Japanese countryside in the face of her declining health. Unlike Ichikawa Fusai, she never ended up joining any of the state-sponsored women's groups to support the war effort. That meant she didn't have the kind of political taint on her that Ichikawa did. She was never purged from government. But it also meant she fell largely off the radar. Indeed, it's worth noting that Hiratsuka had been the one fighting in the 20s for increased protections for Japanese mothers, but it was Ichikawa and the other feminists who engaged with the wartime government who actually got those kind of laws passed. Where Hiratsuka did stick to her causes, they proved largely unsuccessful, Well into the 1930s, she continued to fight for laws banning Japanese men with STDs from getting married. Which, hey, I can see the rationale, but her logic was grounded in a kind of awkward field. She argued that STDs were a detriment to Japan from the perspective of eugenics, a weird pseudoscience that is about trying to breed humans the same way that we breed livestock to improve desirable traits and eugenics as an ideology has a long history in the modern era, and most of it is pretty dark stuff because of the kind of things people unthinkingly label as undesirable. That argument, rather unsurprisingly, did not gain a lot of traction, so Hiratsuka stuck to farm life, occasionally going out and giving lectures, but largely staying out of the spotlight. Indeed, even after the war ended, she continued to do so. Ichikawa actually offered Hiratsuka a spot in the New Japan Women's League, a chance to mend fences from the 1920s, but Hiratsuka was uninterested in returning to public activism at that level, and refused to take it. Only in 1950 did she return to the direct world of political activism, and that was due not to anything related to the cause of feminism, but the cause of peace. Specifically, in summer of that year, war broke out on the Korean Peninsula, and all of a sudden, things were looking tense. You have to remember, 1950 was the start of the Cold War. Nobody knew if things were going to remain stable, or if the Americans and Soviets would end up at each other's throats. Only the year before the Soviets had detonated their first atomic bomb, the Chinese Communists had seized control of mainland China. A clash between Soviet and American-backed regimes was now happening on the Korean peninsula, and who is to say what the end result could possibly be? In that atmosphere, Hiratsuka decided to try and take a stand against the escalation of war. In June, as conflict in Korea was beginning, she ended up going to America alongside several other female anti-war activists to present a letter to the American Secretary of State, asking that Japan be kept out of the conflict and that the country's neutrality and pacifism, enshrined in its post-war constitution, which had been so graciously written by the Americans, be respected. This moment marked Hiratsuka's return to politics mostly as a figure in the peace movement. For example, she got involved in several groups dedicated to opposing any attempt to get Japan to rearm after the Second World War. Fun fact that I actually learned doing the research for this podcast, she was also an early supporter of the Okinawan reversion movement, pressing for an end to the U.S. civil administration of the Ryukyu Islands, and for Japan to both take back sovereignty of the islands and evict the Americans from their military bases there as a way of defending its neutrality. But this is not to say that Hiratsuka abandoned feminist causes, either. For example, in 1953, she was instrumental in establishing the Japan Federation of Women's Organizations, which was supposed to help serve as an umbrella organization to help women's political groups around the country coordinate effectively. She also founded yet another women's group, the New Japan Women's Association, or Shin Nihon Fujin no in 1962. But this also dovetailed with her anti-war activism. For example, in the 60s, she worked to expand that organization into Vietnam, building connections with local women's groups there as a part of her peace activism and as a way to try and pressure the Americans into taking a more peaceful stance towards North Vietnam. As her politics might suggest, like Ichikawa, Hiratsuka was also peripherally involved with the Japanese left, though also like Ichikawa, she was never a formal member of any party. In her case, Hiratsuka built strong ties with the Japanese Communist Party, which shared her dedication to peaceful coexistence between states, though admittedly the JCP's vision of peaceful coexistence was grounded less in outright pacifism, and more in the whole Marxist eventually the flaws of capitalism will undermine the system, and when it does we will be there, that whole deal. Again, Hiratsuka was never a member of the JCP, or any other left-wing party for that matter, but she did rally support for those parties. For example, in 1952, she electioneered for the Japanese left wing, giving speeches arguing that women should vote for parties that were, quote, absolutely opposed to rearmament and which vowed to defend the peace constitution to the last, unquote. By the early 60s, Hiratsuka's return to the political center stage was largely complete. She was now recognized as one of the founding figures of the feminist movement. Sato, once ridiculed as a ridiculous collection of troublemaking lesbians and other difficult women, was now considered a pioneering forerunner in modern feminism. In early 1961, Hiratsuka attended a reunion of Sato contributors on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the start of the magazine. The tone was one of vindication. Hiratsuka herself gave a speech entitled, looking back at 50 years of the women's movement. It read, in part, When we started the journal, we were all still in our 20s, some were in our teens, and not always fully aware of the consequences of our actions. In many cases, we acted because we were driven by an irrepressible inner force. As to the manifesto, in the beginning, women was the sun, I little imagined it would resonate so strongly in the hearts and minds of women, or that it would be remembered in women's history. Indeed, I am surprised, even a little awed, by the magnitude of the response to my words. But in retrospect, perhaps this was to be expected. Trampled and despised for generations, in a male-dominated world, Japanese women were ready to explode and I happened to be the escape valve. We were criticized for our actions and had no choice but to fight back, Yet unlike women today, we did not even think of launching an organized movement. We would not even have known how to do such a thing, even if we had thought of it. Our only recourse was for each of us to speak out and act on our convictions." The chance to give this speech was a marker of how far the women's movement had come, but also of the cost and loss along the way, for 11 former Sato contributors had died by the time this speech was given, even though all of them had been in their teens and 20s when the magazine had started. Heratska remained politically active through the 60s, giving speeches, leading peace demonstrations, even as her health started to fail. In 1963, she began writing her autobiography, well, technically her second autobiography as she published a shorter one in the 50s, named for her most famous work, In the Beginning, Woman Was the Sun. She worked tirelessly on this, trying to archive as much of the story of the women's movement as she could. She had a team of young note-takers who would take down her stories and then present them back to her so she could modify them. In 1964, her longtime partner Okumura Hiroshi, who I have totally forgotten to mention up until this point, died. Just like her scandalous relationship with Morita Sohei, This relationship, too, had made waves, but for far better reasons. Okamura and Hiratsuka had met and fallen in love way back in the 1910s and had started living openly together around this time. However, they had not gotten married at a time when men and women living together outside marriage was still considered to be incredibly scandalous. And it was even more scandalous because they started having kids outside of wedlock Which, ooh, sex outside of marriage, Oh, that's just not the sort of thing upstanding women did. But neither one seemed to care that much. They didn't even bother getting married until 1941. Instead, they focused their energies on living a healthy and loving relationship as equals. Apparently, Okumura, who was an artist by trade, made a regular habit of gifting his wife with lovingly drawn pictures of her favorite flowers. Hiratsuka, too, was getting up in years. In 1970, she was diagnosed with cancer, but still found time to lead one more protest after the diagnosis against the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty. She would die the next year at the age of 85. So what are we to make of these two women and their careers? Well, for starters, I am just constantly impressed by the courage that both women showed in pursuing their most deeply held beliefs— It really is important not to forget that one of the reasons that so many women were missing from that seito reunion is that some of them were straight up murdered for the work they did. And even if physical danger weren't an issue, both Hiratsuka and Ichikawa received barrages of criticism for being unladylike, for trying to subvert traditional family values, and they bore that criticism all their lives. That takes courage, and that courage is worth recognizing. At the same time, neither of these women were perfect. Ichikawa Fusae literally collaborated with Japanese militarists to get the things she wanted. Hiratsuka Raicho ultimately was not terribly successful in most of her advocacy. She herself noted with quite a bit of anger that it was not her work, but a foolish and wasteful war which had ultimately gotten women most of what she wanted to get them. Her fight for global peace was, well, not a winning one. Yet that lack of absolute purity on the one hand or complete success on the other does not mean that we should disregard these women. If anything, it gives us all the more reason to think about them. Few people get through the world of politics unscathed by decisions that look bad in retrospect. To hold out for that kind of moral purity is, at least to my mind, a foolish decision to cut off your nose despite your face, which ultimately ends in getting nothing done. Hiratsuka, meanwhile, may not have been the one to smash the patriarchy and crown women as voters atop the smoldering rubble heap, but her work on Saito and her later advocacy did shift the conversation in Japan. It opened up avenues of discussion that previously had been closed, avenues that the next generation of women then had access to themselves. And that's what I find interesting about these women, The organizational and intellectual work they did was complicated and difficult and frankly kind of confusing to keep track of in places, but it was also pioneering work, work that helped improve the status of Japanese women far beyond what it was 100 years ago when Hiratsuka Raicho and Ichikawa Fusae were young girls. Japan still has a long way to go in that regard. The World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report ranks Japan 121st globally on a series of metrics used to measure women's equality in society. For example, the number of women in parliamentary or ministerial positions. That puts them behind the United States at 53, China at 106, and the United Arab Emirates at spot 120. And if you're curious, spots 1 to 5 are respectively Iceland, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Nicaragua. The battle clearly is far from won in Japan, but thanks to women like Ichikawa and Hiratsuka, the fight was able to at least get started. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons JLS and Amalink for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, Check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net. that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle the life of one of the most interesting women of the early Tokugawa period, Lady Kasuga.